Welcome to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast with Brett, Ed, Fran, Johnny, Matt and Paul, helping you to build more muscle and to lose weight with a hint of banter and a dash of humour. Enjoy this week's episode. Right. Don't, well, don't say that with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there, there is zero chance that that is getting removed from the recording. That is definitely staying on. Um, this is episode number 103. I mean 102. Might as well be 103. Bear in mind, we've just recorded 47 minutes of pure gold. And unfortunately, um, IT error means we're now going to repeat all of it again. But it was so good, it's worth listening to twice. I know you just want to listen to my sound and my voice again. 100%. It's a bit like the uh, Tenacious D song, where the uh, the greatest song in the world. But this isn't actually the song. The song was before. Um, so this is just the tribute. Yeah. <laughs> Can you sing it? That, that oh, uh, I, I can to the backing track, yeah. Probably word for word. This is a tribute. Um, yeah, sorry for everyone listening for the inside joke, but yes, we have actually just recorded and are now re-recording. So we are episode 102 of this No Nonsense Nutrition podcast. Ed, you said something about cycling. You apparently do a few miles, blah, blah, blah. No one really cares anyway, so we're just going to skip that part. Um <laughs> It was a good story. <laughs> cool story, bro. I could have died. <laughs> what? Going up a couple of hills on a bike? Yeah. Yeah. I doubt it. Um, yeah. yeah. Could have died of hunger. That's what he was exactly. getting. I'm, I'm, done. I'm right. actually now having to eat because my dinner, I think I've got sarcopenia. I've, I've, I've <laughs> contracted sarcopenia because I've not eaten any protein in how many days? I don't know. Um, it's not going to make any difference anyway. Um, you said I was an extra large Martin McDonald, is what you said. <laughs> Richie said a swole Martin McDonald. Same thing. <laughs> um, so yes, what was I saying? See, I'm I'm literally I'm, I'm... a fantastic. You you carry on eating. It's all right. I've, I've got this. I've got this. Got this. We've got a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic guest uh, on this week in Richie Kerwin. Uh, Richie, how are you? I'm not doing too bad, lads. How are you guys doing? Very, very good. Getting tired now, you know, it's getting late on in the evening. I, I can't imagine, yeah, after the uh, the kind of marathon session that we just put in just to have it all uh, disappear on us. I swear to God, I've never seen a sadder look on anybody's faces as when I saw Brett's when he realized that it hadn't recorded. <laughs> I think he did it on purpose. I, I definitely think he sabotaged something, but uh, hey-ho, we, uh, we carry on. Uh, we could have not mentioned it at all, and it could have been another. Oh, no, no, no! You you got to own the uh, the mistakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so in 102 episodes, for there only to be two cock ups in 102 episodes, uh, we'll take that. Uh, and I'm proud that I'm one of those cock ups. <laughs> yeah, you're in the same league as Martin McDonald now. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, Richie, who are you? Um, what do you do? How? Um, how did you get into nutrition? Okay. Um, so, yeah, my name is Richie Kerwin. Um, I am a nutrition consultant and I'm a researcher at uh, Liverpool John Moore's uh, University. And I suppose, how did I get into nutrition? When I was a teenager, uh, I used to be overweight um, and I was also a bit of a science geek. So, I did originally want to get into nutrition. Um, but my parents kind of pushed me away from that because back in the day, they didn't they didn't think that um, nutrition was uh, a, a viable career option, let's say. So they kind of pushed me towards doing a more general science degree. So I ended up 
um, graduating from uh, University College Cork in Ireland with a degree in biology, specializing in microbiology. And after that, I went uh, kind of went straight into working. I, I traveled for a few years and worked nothing to do with nutrition, nothing to do with um, biology or science at all. And uh, I, after a few more years of traveling, I decided I wanted to get back into nutrition because it's it's something that I absolutely love. It's something that I kind of apply in my life every day. And it's something that I, I love talking about and love learning about. So I wanted to, to get into it more professionally. So I decided to go and do a master's. And I went and did a master's in nutrition and metabolism in Barcelona. And uh, I was there for a year. And once I graduated, I set up my own company, which is Be More Nutrition, a nutrition um, consultancy. And uh, I worked that for a few years. Then I moved to the UK. And after a while, I wanted to get back into academia. I wanted to get back into research. And I really, really wanted to focus on um, some particular kind of, let's say, passion areas in nutrition. And that's how I ended up doing um, my current PhD in Liverpool, John Moores, where I am right now in sunny Liverpool. And that kind of brings us up to date. I'm, I'm so, really disappointed. Sorry, Ed, I'm really disappointed that we're going to lose my joke about um, boobies and Japanese now. You put it out again. I just, you know, <laughs> you well, flawlessly set it up. So uh, yeah. I hear you speak a lot of languages. What, what countries <laughs> are you looking at? I think it was 28,000. 28,000 languages. <laughs> and I went in with, no, it's only 27,000. Don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs> um, so, uh, okay, so you've lived in quite a few countries. Um, so in the, the, the other recording, we heard Japan, Barcelona, Colombia. Right. You realise Barcelona is not a country, right? Yeah, I know Spain, but, you know, places, <laughs> places. Let's go places. Uh, <laughs> and uh, sunny, sunny England. Um, what is your favorite place you've ever lived in? Oh man, that is quite possibly one of the toughest questions ever. Like every place I have lived, let's say like, okay, amongst Japan, Barcelona, uh, Colombia, I've loved them all. I absolutely have. They've, they've all been, you know, very, very different, very, very fulfilling experiences. Um, you know, I've met some great people, um, but they've all been so different for kind of, you know, the, the experiences that I've had and kind of um, kind of the phases of my life that I've, I've had in those places, I, I just couldn't do it, couldn't pick one. Um, probably not England, but, you know, it's, it's not bad. I really, I do like Liverpool. I was living in the Midlands for a while, which I, I was not a fan of at all. And Liverpool um, is an absolute breath of fresh air. People here are super friendly. Um, and I think that might be the Irish influence. Um, but people are friendly. They're really, really chatty. Um, and, yeah, uh, really relaxed. So, yeah. And you, really, and you really like track suits. Love track suits. <laughs> I've, worked, I've, I've worked all over the country, and Scousers are, without doubt, the friendliest people in the world, and like my favourite place to work a lot of the time. They're uh, super yeah. nice, yeah. Really good yeah. people. Um, when you were in Colombia, did you have anything to do with the war on drugs or either side of it? I'm not allowed to talk about that. Okay. Uh, no, I didn't. Um, I, funny enough, I lived in a place called Cali, um, and Cali is... Uh, Were you part a, of a cartel? <laughs> no, I wasn't part of a cartel, funny enough. But, um, so yeah, Cali does have quite a reputation for cartels. Um, and a lot of that stuff does still go on in Cali. Um, but the, the, the interesting thing is, um, 
so for example like you know hard drugs like that are not an issue in colombia because what happens is you know those drugs are produced and the vast majority are sent abroad to other countries mostly to the united states um but there is definitely kind of a, a let's say a subculture of cartels in cali and you do need to be careful uh what with what you say and with where you go and kind of how you um behave yourself um and i had i kind of knew that before i went over there but like and i think it was my i think it was my second or third night in cali after i arrived i went so i went to colombia to go dancing um funnily enough to learn how to salsa dance and i really really wanted to go dancing so i went to this one club and i didn't realize that in colombia when you go dancing you take your dancing partners with you so i kind of showed up i rocked up with a couple of other guys from the place where i was staying and we were like you know none of these girls are kind of you know they don't want to dance with us what's going on and i saw one table where there was this one guy dressed really really well with three beautiful women sitting around him and i waited for my moment and he went out to dance on the dance floor and i said okay this is it i said to the other guys i'm going to ask these girls to dance and we said they said richie i don't i don't think that's a really good idea and said I want to go dancing. So I went over, invited this girl out to dance. She did not look super excited about it because she kept looking over at the guy on the dance floor, like the guy she was in with. Um, I had my dance anyway, and she said, at the end of it, you should probably go now. So that was literally it. We fled out the door into a taxi out of there. But you, so you traveled all that way for one dance? Oh, no, I know. I did end up staying for two years and um, having a lot more dances. Just, you know, I made friends. So. <laughs> you took your own friends with you. Exactly. <laughs> Sounds like right. a good job you did make some friends, otherwise you may not have came home. No. But we all know I survived. Um, complete completely well, related but nothing to do with nutrition. But there's a really good episode of Joe Rogan podcast with a guy called Johan Grio, where he talks about the cartel stuff in Colombia and Mexico. So anyone's interested, oh. go listen. I'm going to have to check it out. I love Joe Rogan's podcasts. Yeah, I think it's uh, Johan is like I-O-A-N or something like that. Or A <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Grio is in Gorillo. Grillo. Um, anyway, just uh, shout out. Why not? Go listen. I'll check it out. Um, Ed? Carol? No, yeah. oh, you want me to? You yeah. want me to carry on hosting? Okay. No, you don't have to. Um, <laughs> so you you mentioned your PhD um, at mm -hmm. uh, Liverpool, John Moore. Um, what what exactly is it in? What what, what is a PhD and what uh, yeah? What are you doing it on? Okay, so um, I suppose the first thing to say about the PhD is it was a PhD program that was advertised, and I applied for it. And I applied for it because when I saw the the title of the the PhD it struck a chord with me. It, it literally had so many aspects of kind of areas of nutrition that I'm really, really interested in that I said, I, I, I do remember saying to my, um, to my girlfriend, um, George, I said, I have to get this PhD. This, it's like it's made for me. Um, so the title, the original title, uh, we've since changed it, is, uh, was um, a high-protein Mediterranean diet and resistance exercise for the amelioration of cardiometabolic risk markers um, in, uh, sarco uh, in cardiac rehab patients with sarcopenic obesity. So it absolutely rolls off the tongue. Really, really good title, which we've since shortened. Um, I'm sure you'll be delighted to know. But um, basically what we're going to be doing is working with um, 
cardiac rehab patients who have a condition called sarcopenic obesity um, and giving them a high protein diet, resistance exercise, and hopefully that's going to make them healthier. Um, and you know, we're going to hopefully talk a little bit about how that happens um, in this podcast. What is sarcopenic obesity? Okay, so yeah, good place to start. Um, so it's a combination of two diseases, so sarcopenia and obesity. And sarcopenia is um, an age-related decline in muscle mass. It's basically the loss of muscle mass as we get older. Um, it's a very, very normal condition. Um, after the age of, let's say, uh, of 50 years of age, it's between 1% and 2% of muscle mass can be lost over time. Um, and then you've also got obesity, which, as you know, is a, an accumulation of, of fat mass, which has a lot of negative, um, uh, uh, negative health effects. And when you put those two together, you get sarcopenic obesity, which actually seems to have um, more negative health effects than the sum of its two parts. Um, and it seems to be a, a very, very growing um, area of concern within nutrition and um, like the study of body composition and, and its health effects, uh, because we, we are seeing that it's something, it's a condition that kind of goes unnoticed just because of poor ways of detecting it um, within the population. But we do know that sarcopenic obesity, so that loss of muscle mass with kind of an increase in fat mass, it's associated with um, higher rates of cardiovascular disease, so heart disease, uh, higher rates of stroke, higher rates of diabetes, um, higher rates of uh, falls, frailty, poor quality of life, um, higher rates of osteoporosis, um, and higher death rates as well. So it's it's not a pleasant condition at all. I guess it's also something that's quite self-prophesizing in that obviously people that start to, to reduce or lose muscle mass could potentially lead to more inactivity, which could lead to more fat gain and Absolutely. So the thing with, with sarcopenia is um, it's very much uh, one of the main causes of it is inactivity. And people, as they get older, they do tend to become a lot less active. Um, and when they become less active, uh, they tend to lose that muscle mass. And when they lose that muscle mass, the loss of muscle mass actually makes activity less easy. Okay, so you're, you're less likely to move. Um, in people who have sarcopenia, it's been shown that they have a greatly reduced amount of NEAT, so like non-exercise uh, associated thermogenesis. So basically the kind of um, energy that we expend when we do like basic tasks like walking around the house, like, you know, carrying the groceries, doing work in the garden. When people have less muscle mass and, and when, they're less, when they're not as strong, they have less NEAT. They do less movement. They, they, their movement is a lot more difficult for them. Um, so you've got, like you said, uh, Brett, you've got this continuous cycle of people not moving, losing muscle mass, which that results in them moving even less and then losing more muscle mass. And then when you kind of compound that, co that condition with um, added fat mass, if you think of like an older person who has already lost a lot of muscle, which makes movement difficult, if they've suddenly, if they've got a, a lot of added fat on their body, they've got less muscle to move a greater amount of weight which means movement is is kind of is less efficient and less pleasant for them, and they're less likely to move. And just it just advances the condition over the years, and that's why it's such a, a cumulative condition. Um, oh. you, you, go on. Sorry, no, no, continue. Sorry, I'll well, I was just going to say, like you, with, with um, like kind of general the general population from sixty up to eighty, you you see about maybe fifteen percent of people have like sarcopenia. 
But then in people in their 80s, it can be as high as 50%, you know, so it does tend to progress over the years. Just, 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 just to answer uh, my question there, I was going to say, I, I was going to ask how many people does it affect, um, but you started to answer answer the question there. So about 15%, okay. so from 60 onwards. Yeah. Oh, um, on that. What about with the uh, obesity connected as well? Um, what sort of percentage of people do that, does that? Now, uh, that, that's a lot harder to answer. So one of the main issues with sarcopenia is um, it was only recently classified as a condition as a disease um, and that was about it was either last year or the year before when it got officially uh, called an, an actual condition um, so we need to think that we we have to be able to identify sarcopenia um, and the way we do that is we need to measure people's muscle mass and we need to measure their fat mass um, to get an idea uh, and their and their body weight and their height just to get an idea of how that compares to the average so with sarcopenia there are a few groups that are working together on a, a definition of what sarcopenia itself is. Um, unfortunately, there's no kind of consensus agreement um, within the, the medical world about what constitutes, what's the cutoff point for sarcopenia. But one of the kind of the, the more promising, um, let's say, definitions was set up by the European Working Group on Sarcopenia. Um, and what they've said is that if you measure um, appendicular muscle mass, so appendicular would be arm and leg muscle mass. Uh, appendicular muscle mass um, over your height squared. And then if that's below two standard deviations of the mean, so the average that that population has, if it's below two standard deviations of the average, that's classed as sarcopenia. On top of that, there's also another um, kind of part of that definition, which is muscle strength, because we do realize that muscle strength is as, if not more important than muscle mass itself, because it's a, it's, a, it's a factor of muscle function. And what we use to assess muscle strength is a thing called a, uh, a grip strength dynamometer, which is a device that you use to squeeze just to measure how strong you're able to squeeze. Um, and there are certain cutoff points for that as well. So that's sarcopenia. And that's a definition that we think we can use. Um, and the problem then is we have to define what's sarcopenic obesity. And at the moment, there is no clear cut definition of what that is. And kind of one of the things that we want to do in our research is when we're going to be analyzing all of the people that we're going to work with, um, we want to take various different measurements um, to basically decide what can we use as a measure of uh, sarcopenic obesity? And importantly, what can we use as an easy measure of sarcopenic obesity? And when I say easy, um, we'd like to be able to kind of use waist measurements and things like that, things that are easy to take in the clinic. Um, because if you're trying to measure, measure muscle mass, it's not that easy to do, especially if you want to do it accurately, because we're going to use a thing called a DEXA, which um, basically measures uh, muscle mass, fat mass, bone mass, uh, using x-rays. It's a really, really expensive machine. It takes about 15 to 20 minutes to do each test. It gives a really, really good, really, really accurate result. But it's not the kind of thing that um, a doctor can use in the clinic, unfortunately. So we want to look at other, let's say, ways of measuring sarcopenia initially and uh, or potentially measuring obesity or the kind of abdominal obesity that's associated with sarcopenic obesity. Um, so yeah, we're going to look at a lot of different measures for that over the, the course of our study. Can you remember what you were going to say, Brett? Uh, yes, I was going to basically say, and 
Richie, you kind of, I think you've answered it slightly, or started to touch on, on it. Um, you said around the, the prevalence or the, the amount of people that suffer with sarcopenia is 15%. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that that potentially would be a lot higher if, or, or the reason it's maybe not, I'm sorry, position this question right. Do you think it is potentially a case of that we've maybe not um, diagnosed as much and it's actually a higher percentage? Or do you think that's kind of an accurate um, representation or reflection of people that might suffer, say, at a certain age, say 50 and above? I think that it is very likely that that's the case, that people are not getting diagnosed with the condition, Um, that the condition does exist. But like I said, it was only classified as a condition itself um, very, very recently. So most doctors aren't going to be kind of looking at their patients and saying, you're sarcopenic. For one thing, it's it's not easy to do in a clinic because um, you can't look at somebody and assume they're sarcopenic. You, you might be able to kind of say, okay, this person, I suppose the, the, in the fitness world, the classic term is kind of skinny fat. Um, so people who have kind of very, very low muscle mass and very, very uh, kind of higher fat mass. Um, it's not easy to kind of judge with the eye and it's not easy to properly identify without the right equipment. Um, and unfortunately, that means like in um, in medical practice, uh, uh, the only kind of anthropometric measures that people do is kind of height and weight. Um, and that kind of gives us the BMI measurement, the body mass index, which we now know is really not a good way of uh, classifying people according to, you know, their weight, weight by height. Because um, so, for example, at the moment, I'm just on the bad side of overweight. Um, and I would like to think that that's actually because I've got more muscle um, than uh, than a normal person uh, of this height. But, you know, I could be wrong. There's um, quite a bit of fat around the waist as well. Um, but that's the problem with BMI, because you could have two people who have the same BMI, but they could have very, very different uh, uh, body composition. So you could have one person who has quite a large amount of uh, muscle mass, which is more dense, which weighs a bit more. Um, and quite a, a lot, uh, a low amount of fat mass. And that person is going to be quite metabolically, metabolically healthy. Um, and then on the other hand, you could have somebody the same BMI, but they would have lower muscle mass and higher fat mass. But if you looked at them in clothes, let's say, they would look quite similar. Um, you know, you wouldn't really be able to tell, you wouldn't be able to tell by their, their body weight. Um, but the person who's got the higher fat mass and the lower muscle mass, they are at a greater risk of you know, future conditions. So that's why BMI, um, body mass index, is not a good uh, diagnostic tool. And, you know, we, we've shown that there, there are other measurements that people can use, like, for example, uh, height to weight ratio actually has a, a much better predictive um, capacity uh, for, for predicting things like diabetes and, and heart disease. Um, so, yeah, we want to investigate kind of ways of making it easier to diagnose uh, Sarcopenia, sarcopenia and sarcopenic obesity as we move forward. But yeah, like, like you said, Brett, um, there probably are a lot more people um, who are suffering from it. They just haven't been diagnosed because the doctors don't even, a lot of doctors probably don't even know that the condition exists. No, I, I, the reason I asked the question uh, pro- is, is probably mainly around the fact that kind of, well, I think I think a lot of people do. You kind of look at sarcopenia as almost a an, an inevitable condition in the same way as getting old is. Yeah, and it it can be that way because when people uh, get older and when they retire, they do tend to become a lot more inactive. And like, you know, 
you know, if you think to, to most of our grandparents, like if I think to my grandparents, they did get a lot smaller and a lot frailer as they got older. And they probably, um, especially with older people, what happens is a lot of them tend to go to homes um, and some of them go to rehabilitation homes after like surgeries or, or kind of major operations that they've had. And it's been shown that um, when somebody goes into a home, their nutrition tends to suffer as well, but they tend to get a lot of bed rest and that kind of results in uh, a in actually a, a much larger proportion of people in homes having sarcopenia. So about 45% of people in some rehabilitation centers have sarcopenia just because they've gotten older, um, they may have had an accident, they may have been confined to a bed for an extended period of time. That being confined to a bed means their muscles are not moving, they're atrophying, they're, they're getting smaller, and yeah, they've lost all that muscle, muscle mass over time, resulting in sarcopenia. Yeah, I think, as I said, when we originally recorded it, it's certainly something personally that I've seen with grandparents and stuff. Um, uh, do you, I don't know if you want to start. Do you want to go through kind of like the study design then, so in terms of what you're... What we're going to do. Yeah, what you're going to do, on obviously, on your PhD in the research. Okay, so um, it's still uh, very, very early stages yet, but we do have uh, an idea of what we want to do um, with people. So we want to have four research arms, and that's really, really important for us because uh, we want to be able to look at a lot of different variables that we're going to put into people's diet. Um, I suppose like before I even start with what the protocol is, um, it's a good idea to talk about who we're going to be working with. Um, and we're going to be working with a, a population of people that are in something called cardiac rehab, cardiac rehabilitation. Um, and here in the UK, the NHS runs a system of cardiac rehab rehabilitation where um, if somebody suffers from some sort of a cardiac event, so for example, a heart attack, they'll get referred um, almost immediately, or at least they should get referred immediately to cardiac rehab. So if somebody, for example, gets a stent put into their heart, um, what will happen is they'll go forward uh, to cardiac rehab within a week. And cardiac rehab is... Um, a lifestyle-based improvement pro uh, program to help people basically reduce their risk of having a, a further cardiac event. And it's based very, very heavily around exercise and more specifically around resistance. Uh, sorry, not resistance, uh, aerobic exercise. There's also some dietary recommendations. There's some uh, lifestyle changes, reduction of stress, um, elimination of smoking, things like that. Um, but it's mostly focused on aerobic exercise. And it does work to a point, but we think that cardiac rehab can be better, that, um, that we can make it better. And the reason we think we can make it better is because of sarcopenic obesity. So we know that sarcopenia in the cardiac population, um, it's much more common. Uh, we know that like, so for example, in, in a standard older population, it's about 15%. In a cardiac population, people who've had some sort of a condition, it's actually, as, it can be as high as 30%. And what we want to do is um, we want to work with these people who have sarcopenia. And we think that by increasing their lean mass, by increasing their muscle mass, we'll be able to reduce certain risk factors for a future cardiac event. So we, can, we hope that we'll be able to reduce things like um, fasting glucose, insulin, um, cholesterol levels, uh, triglycerides. Um, and the reason we want to focus on this population is because there's a thing called the, in, in cardiovascular disease, something called the obesity paradox. And the obesity paradox is um, a paradox showing that with 
in a cardiac population, people with a lower BMI, so what we spoke about earlier, the body mass index, a lower height for weight ratio, they actually have a, a poorer outcome when it comes to um, to cardiac events. So they they actually have a higher rate risk of dying compared to people who have a higher BMI, which doesn't make sense because we know that um, fat, uh, you know, having obesity um, can lead to a greater risk of cardiovascular disease. So people were asking, well, well, why are these people with a lower BMI? Why are they um, why are they dying sooner than people with a higher BMI? And we think it's actually because those people with a lower BMI um, have a much lower amount of muscle mass and a higher amount of fat mass. So they've got sarcopenic obesity. And that basically creates a, a much more unfavorable uh, favorable metabolic milieu in their body, basically. So um, it, it puts them at a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, things like that. So we want to work with those people. And we want to improve their diet and their exercise habits to increase specifically lean mass because we think that can have a massive effect on the body, which kind of brings us through to the intervention that we want to do. Um, and like I said, we want to work with uh, four intervention arms. So one of those arms is going to be a control group, and that's going to be just standard uh, cardiac rehab. So they'll, be, they'll continue doing their, um, their aerobic exercise. They will basically follow the diet recommendations that they were given, which in general at the moment, they don't receive a lot of dietary input, um, which is really, really unfortunate. They get usually one 45-minute session uh, over the course of two months talking about nutrition. Um, they might get, yeah, they get one on nutrition specifically and then one on weight loss specifically. Um, and then we're going to have a high-protein Mediterranean diet group. So We've got two different aspects of the diet there. We've got a Mediterranean diet and we've got a high-protein diet. Um, and the reason for that is, is, and it's kind of one of the reasons that I was kind of selected for this project, is because when I was in Barcelona, my project, uh, sorry, my research was with the PREDIMED group. So the PREDIMED group did a really, really, uh, one of the biggest studies on um, Mediterranean diets and heart disease um, in the world. It was a massive study at the time, and uh, they're continuously basically putting out a huge amount of papers based on the results from their study. And I worked with that group. I worked with Mediterranean diets. And they found that people who followed a Mediterranean diet actually were able to reduce their risk of ever having a cardiovascular event. And it was also effective for reducing risk of diabetes um, and a number of other conditions. So that's why we want to bring in a Mediterranean diet group, because we think it, it is genuinely a heart-healthy diet. Um, and then the high protein aspect is because we want to increase muscle mass, we know that one effective way of increasing muscle mass is increasing the protein content of the diet. And when you're working with older people, so older people suffer from a condition called anabolic resistance. And anabolic resistance means that a normal amount of protein or a normal amount of uh, resistance exercise isn't actually enough to stimulate muscle growth compared to younger people. So that, that, that resistance they have to muscle growth is anabolic resistance. And we, we know that higher protein intakes can actually overcome that anabolic resistance. Um, and we also know that um, more kind of higher intensities of resistance exercise and higher volumes can overcome that anabolic resistance as well. So for the protein aspect, we're going to increase the amount of protein that we give them per meal. 
Um, and we want to see if that'll have an effect. We'll also have a resistance exercise only group. And the only change that they're going to make is that they're going to be doing a resistance exercise program that we're getting designed um, in association with the uh, uh, an exercise physiologist from the BACPR, which is the British Association of Cardiac Prevention and Rehabilitation. And he's designing a program specifically for us because he's an expert on uh, resistance exercise in cardiac populations. So we need to, obviously, it's a sensitive population, a high-risk population, because they have had a heart condition or a, heart, a cardiac event in the past. We want to make sure that the resistance exercise that we give them is something that they can tolerate and then something that they can also build on to get enough stimulation to, to, to basically grow muscles. Um, and then the last group is going to be a combined group of a combined high-protein Mediterranean diet and a resistance exercise group. And we... You know, obviously, it's very, very early days yet, but we would speculate that the combined group will have the greatest increase in muscle mass. Um, and to, to measure that muscle mass, we're going to be using, like I said, DEXA scanners um, to measure muscle mass before and after the intervention, which will be about 12 weeks. Um, and then we'll also measure um, a host of uh, cardiometabolic factors, like I said, uh, glucose, insulin, um, uh, blood lipids, uh, triglycerides, things like that. And we want to see what improvements can we get with that increase in, in muscle mass. So our main goal is increase muscle mass and see if that can reduce their risk markers for another cardiac event. Was there, was there a specific reason why you guys, or the uh, study design was focused on the Mediterranean diet then, um, rather than any other high-protein diet? Yeah, um, so... One of my supervisors, um, uh, I've got a really good supervisory team. One of my supervisors, Tom Butler, he's at the University of Chester and he's um, uh, a registered dietitian and a specialist in cardiac rehab. And he works a lot with the Mediterranean diet. And so the Mediterranean diet has been shown to be quite beneficial for preventing um, what we call primary and secondary uh, cardiovascular disease. So primary cardiovascular diseases, if you've never had a, a heart attack or any kind of a cardiac event before, primary prevention is stopping you from ever having one. Secondary prevention is when you've had a cardiac event and then you go on the diet to stop you having another event in the future. And so there's, there were a lot of uh, different studies on a Mediterranean diet. One was uh, the Lyon heart study, which was carried out in France, and that did secondary prevention, and it showed the, the, diet, the Mediterranean-style diet to be really effective for that, um, at reducing the risk of a future cardiac event. And then the PREDIMED study that I mentioned earlier in Spain um, focused on primary prevention, so stopping people, people who are at risk. Now, it's kind of important to talk about that. So uh, if you guys are familiar with something called metabolic syndrome, it's a cluster of different conditions. So uh, we're talking about diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, um, abdominal obesity, um, and um, abnormal blood lipids. Um, that is a that those all of those conditions when they come together, they do put you at a much greater risk of developing heart disease in the future. So everybody in the PREDIMED study had met, uh, had metabolic syndrome, and what they did was they gave them this Mediterranean diet, and they showed that people following the Mediterranean diet. Um, actually reduce their chance of developing heart disease, cardiovascular disease, moving into the future compared to a standard low-fat diet. 
And for people that don't necessarily understand what a Mediterranean diet is then, do you want to just discuss or talk about what it might be? Sure. Um, so there's no specific definition for a Mediterranean diet. It's um, because when you think about it, it's a dietary pattern that encompasses the whole Mediterranean. So you're talking from Spain through Italy, Greece, uh, all around um, the, the Levant and then North Africa. Uh, the one thing that does seem to tie it together is um, a high intake of olive oil. Um, but when we think of a Mediterranean diet based on the kind of definitions that we use today, it's a diet that's high in olive oil. Um, it tends to be high in fresh produce, so fruits and vegetables. Um, it has higher intakes of whole grains, higher intakes of legumes, um, higher intakes of fish. And then it has lower intakes of red and processed meat, um, lower intakes of refined cereal products um, and commercial uh, cereals. Um, it also uh, has... Uh, let's say a moderate consumption of wine so like one of the recommendations is one glass of red wine a day um so yeah that's the kind of general idea of what a mediterranean diet is um i think it's it's more important to talk about like mediterranean style diets as opposed to a specific mediterranean diet because there is none um so uh, with a mediterranean style diet you can almost tailor you know, let's say other diets, like so, for example, a standard English diet or a standard Northwest diet, like we uh, we have here in Liverpool, um, you can tailor that to be more of a Mediterranean style while still being kind of at its heart um, the food that people recognize, you know, and people that, that that people are used to, and that's going to be important for us moving forward with, uh, you know, make sure making sure that people stick to this diet in the in the protocol. So what sort of tweaks are you going to make then to a very typical diet that you potentially might find uh, in the Northwest to make oh. it slightly more Mediterranean? Yeah, so it's it's a tough population to work with. Um, so the Northwest of England um, has one of the poorest uh, diets and also has some of the, the highest rates of, of cardiovascular disease and uh, diabetes in the UK. Um, the diets here tend to be very, very low in fresh produce, very, very high in refined produce, um, high in saturated fat. Um, and what we want to do is make tweaks to that. So we want to get more vegetables into the diet. Um, we're going to do that focusing on, um, let's say, more commonly used British vegetables. So we're not going to be telling people to, uh, to eat, you know, you know, get a couple of artichokes in every day and, you know, a, a load of vegetables that they, you know, are more common in the Mediterranean region. We'll be focusing on things like, you know, what people are used to, carrots, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, uh, spinach, things like that. We'll also be getting people to focus on using uh, frozen produce as well, because a lot of people kind of frown upon frozen produce, frozen vegetables, um, thinking that it's kind of a poor nutritional quality. And the truth is that it's it's generally not like because frozen vegetables are, you know, they're generally harvested and frozen within a few hours of being harvested, whereas, you know, things you get in the supermarket can be out on the shelf for, you know, a, a number of days and in transport, you're talking about a, a period of weeks before people eat it. So we want to get people using those more kind of economical uh, sources of vegetables, same going for sources of fruit. We want to show them ways that they can incorporate it more into their diet. We want people using more um, tomato-based sauces. So um, in the Mediterranean region, people eat, uh, I think, called, especially in Spain, they eat something called sofrito. And sofrito is usually um, tomatoes, uh, cooked with garlic, uh, onions, things like that. So basically what we would consider to be a, an Italian-style bolognese sauce, you know, uh, tomato-based sauce with lots of herbs and bits of garlic. We want to get people eating more of that. So, you know, using a, a good old jar of dolmio is a great way of doing that. It's super easy. Um, 
we want people to focus on, we want them to get more fish in, so we can easily focus on getting more canned fish into the diets because people are more familiar with that. Um, we probably want to avoid people going for, you know, a nice piece of battered cod that they would get at their local chippy. That's um, not the, yeah, that's not the area that we're at. Fish fingers? <laughs> Brett doesn't look too happy about that. Um, and, um, yeah, so lots of little choices of that. And then we want them to introduce maybe some pulses, some legumes into the diet. And an easy way to do that is, like, you know, it's going to sound very, very strange and people will frown upon it, but baked beans, because when you think about it, baked beans are just pulses you know beans um cooked in tomato sauce and we know tomatoes great source of polyphenols they're a great source of fiber great source of protein lots of benefits for for heart health so you know lots of little changes like that that people can make in their diet if you give them the right education and if you give them the right encouragement to do so so the the kind of with the study are the the information that you're going to gain from it what what is it you're wanting to do with that? Are you wanting to increase uh, increase mortality rates? Are you, uh, what, what, what exactly are you? So what we hope, so this is a pilot study that I think that's really, really important to, uh, to remember. So it's a small scale study. We're only going to be working with about, um, hopefully about 60 individuals. So like 15 people per group. Um, what we want is we want to use this as a feasibility study for something that's going to be much bigger. Um, so we'll take this study, we'll analyze the results that we get, we'll see, is there a chance that there's a benefit for these different um, protocols that we're using? If there is a benefit, um, which we'll see in the form of like, you know, those, those improvements in their blood markers, um, hopefully also we're going to measure, do some quality of life measures as well. Um, if there's an improvement there, we want to move this on to a full scale study, which is going to be much larger. And potentially multi-center, so working in a lot of different hospitals around the Northwest. And what we want to do, kind of um, like the, the, the grand goal of everything, is to improve cardiac rehab. So we want to work with the BACPR, so that the British Association of Cardiac Prevention and Rehabilitation. We want to work with them and change the way cardiac rehab is done at the moment. Because at the moment... Like I said, there's a massive focus on aerobic exercise, and I'm not knocking aerobic exercise. It's, it, it is definitely helping some people who have never exercised before, but we think resistance exercise is going to be better. Um, and we also think that there needs to be a, a, a more, kind of more of a focus on this higher protein aspect and this, let's say, Mediterranean-style diet. So getting people to make more you know, uh, bigger changes to their diet that will actually have an effect um, and if we can get that, like if we can make those policy changes and if we can get this brought into, you know, cardiac rehab rehabilitation in the UK, you know, there's a good chance that we could reduce somebody's risk of having another cardiac event. So if somebody's had a heart attack, they're at a much greater risk of having another one, but we think that we can reduce that significantly. Um, so that's the, the whole plan of this. We want to make sure that, you know, if somebody has a heart attack, then we want to try and do our best to make sure they won't have another one in the future and hopefully have a better quality of life um, because you know getting them exercising more is going to give them a, a better quality of life if they stick to it uh, same for a better diet uh, it'll improve their social lives which will hopefully improve their mental health so there, there's so many different facets to the improvements that people can make um, with this kind of with this intervention that uh, you know yeah we're, we're very hopeful for it Do, in terms of 
the outcome. So obviously everyone wants to see that the outcomes of, of what you just said, everyone's basically people's health improve, quality of life improve, etc. Um, do you expect to see the participants if they do kind of adhere and implement some of the strategies that you're going to give and provide an advice on? Um, do you expect them to see any result in like weight loss? So that that's an interesting one. So we're not we're not aiming for weight loss. Um, and would, interestingly enough, um, in the PREDIMED study, uh, they didn't aim for weight loss, and people didn't actually lose weight at all, but they did seem to improve their cardiovascular risk markers. Um, we're not going to aim for weight loss, but there is something to kind of be aware of in this. This is in the intervention groups, we're giving people a high protein diet. And we're also going to be doing a Mediterranean style diet. So what's going to happen is hopefully, if people you know adhere to the protocol, people are going to be eating more vegetables. Um, they'll have a higher food volume. They'll be eating more protein. And we know protein is a very, very satiating um, macronutrient. We know that it kind of, it causes people to feel less hunger and to eat less throughout the day. Um, high protein diets are really, really good at kind of reducing food intake. So we think that there's a possibility that people will genuinely eat less following this diet. We're not going to put any calorie restrictions on this at all. It's going to be an ad libitum diet. People can eat, you know, as much as they want. But we think that because of the higher satiety of this specific diet, that people will potentially reduce their intake, lose weight. And that that is a plus as well, because we know that like, you know, just 5% of body weight loss, you know, in, in obese patients that can result in a huge amount of benefits when it comes to, you know, their cardiovascular risk and their risk of diabetes. Yeah, I think uh, it's worth exploring or, or kind of bringing that up because I guess it's these types of studies, and it's interesting about the PREDIMED one, obviously the point you raised that I did know about, but um, obviously it's interesting for people that maybe uh, don't, don't know about that study, obviously that, that a lot of the, I mean, I guess you're obviously looking at averages or means across the entire study group anyway, mm -hmm. and obviously that was a quite a, a large amount of participants, wasn't it? But So I guess there will certainly be people in that did lose weight, but um, on the whole, if the people didn't lose weight, they still see all these increased, um, increase in health markers. Is sometimes in certain studies can be difficult to kind of know what is the the, the kind of because you can't control or you can't always control for a thing, and it's sometimes it'd be difficult to know what is the actual direct, direct causation of a particular you know result. I.e., exactly. was it the weight loss? Was it the type? Was it the actual intervention or or what? Although I mean, I must admit, I like I like the fact that obviously the, the protocol being like almost an ad libitum diet. Is, has a lot more real-world um, applicability than than obviously having to control calories because most people don't want to control calories or not certainly not count calories etc. So being able to to kind of follow a principle protocol or whatever and actually just live life, I think it can be um, assumingly successful a lot easily more easily rolled out than than obviously maybe some other types of um, protocols that people might be coming up with. Uh, like you, you kind of nailed it on the head there. Like you know. It, the getting people to ad actually adhere to the diet is really, really important. Um, so kind of when we're doing different, you know, studies of, of different diets, you can have a diet that's controlled for calories. And the great thing about controlling for calories is that you get to see the benefits of the diet itself. And it's like a, it's macronutrient co composition, it's composition of fruit and vegetables or whatever, whatever is different about that diet. And you can say, okay, what's happened in this diet is because of 
this. It's because of a higher protein or it's because of uh, a change in the type of main type of fat that we're using or it's because of reduced car- carbohydrates or whatever. Um, when you don't control for uh, calories, if people do lose weight, it's very, very difficult to say, well, did they have this benefit because uh, of the diet itself or did they have this benefit just because they lost weight? It's a tough one to call. But this, that type of study is also a lot more let's say, real world, inverted commas, because that's the way people are going to be eating um, if you give them an ad libitum diet, if you don't set them any restrictions and if you, you kind of allow their hunger to, to set the restrictions for them. Um, and it's really, really important for us in this study to focus on adherence. And actually, one of the, one of the things I did for the, like, the first two months or so was just focusing on studies um, where they were trying to promote adherence to different diets and looking at different strategies that, that people are using to get people to stick to a diet for a long enough time for it to have a benefit. Um, and we want to kind of uh, implement some of those things that we've learned from that research into this study moving forward and then hopefully refine that so that in, if we do a much larger scale study, um, we'll be able to make sure that you know, we'll have a better protocol for making people stick to the diet, getting people to stick to the diet happily. When uh, I know, obviously, you just said that you're not going to control calories and things like that, or really give them too much diet intervention, apart from sort of a few swaps and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, is that how you're going to implement the high protein part of it, just by saying make, make sure we have protein every meal and make sure you that sort of stuff? Or oh, so, so that's that's part of it. Um, so a, amongst the so, like I said, this is a, a high protein Mediterranean style diet. So it's a modified Mediterranean diet. So. Um, we are going to be increasing the amount of like lean meat and fish, eggs, uh, low-fat dairy uh, that we would recommend more so than would have been recommended in like the PREDIMED study. So we will recommend people to eat more protein, definitely. Um, but another thing that we, we are going to do is we're going to supply a protein source for uh, the people who are doing the study. So um, in PREDIMED, what they did was to make sure people were actually adhering to the diet is they provided them with olive oil to one group and then they provide another group with um, uh, mixed nuts because those were the two different research arms of PREDIMED. Um, and that increased uh, adherence a lot because, you know, getting protein source, getting different so- sources of protein can be quite expensive. But if you're providing people with those protein sources, um, they're much more likely to, to take them. And we're actually in talks at the moment with um, a large dairy supplier to provide us with high protein yogurts. And the reason we're going for yogurts is because, one, it's very, very convenient. You literally just pull the top off and just, you know, knock back a yogurt. It's super easy to do. They're very, very palatable. Okay, people generally enjoy them. Um, And yogurts as well, milk-based yogurts, are very, very high in an amino acid called leucine. And leucine, we know, is very, very good for stimulating muscle growth, muscle protein synthesis, which is what we want to happen. So we're going to use these um, high protein yogurts. Um, we're probably going to give them about two of these yogurts a day. We're going to recommend one at breakfast because breakfast is typically, um, at least in the UK, uh, the lowest protein meal that people will eat. because um, a lot of people here in the UK focus on cereal and toast. Um, and then we're going to provide another one to have either as a dessert with lunch or dinner, um, just to increase their, their total amount of protein throughout the day and it's a very very high quality protein that we want to be uh, want people to take we could have looked at protein powders um the problem with protein powders is people need to mix them up people need to have a shaker um and for a lot of older people 
it just looks a bit weird. Um, you know, uh, how many older people do you know that go around with a shaker um, and knocking back protein shakes every day? It's just, it's kind of, it would be adding to the difficulty of doing this study. So we want to make it as easy for people as possible. And yogurts are easy because everybody, well, most people eat yogurt. You can't, uh, you can't drink protein shakes when you're older because of steroids. So, you know. <laughs> very, very true. And that's illegal. <laughs> yeah so uh, yeah there's, there's a lot of stigma and dogma about them i suppose aren't there so. absolutely uh, fun, funnily enough like just because you brought up steroids um that is uh, a treatment for sarcopenia um that that is used in medicine at the moment like in, in extreme cases of uh, sarcopenia um some doctors recommend clenbuterol so there's like you know 80 year old uh, men and women who are on clen um and getting absolutely jacked um and it's improving their health because and there's also um testosterone is recommended for them a lot as well and then sarms um are used as well so sarms are another form of kind of at the moment they're they're almost considered a, a performance enhancing drug they're kind of like in a um a gray area between being legal and illegal but they were developed initially to help people with muscle wasting diseases so people with um sarcopenia I think SARMs are still very much outlawed by most um, sporting federations, aren't they? So, yeah. So, yeah, none of us will be uh, taking them. I thought you're you. Sorry, what's that? There you go. go. I was going to say, Ed, you're not going to be taking any on your bike rides, are you? No. Well, you know, if it helps me get up that last hill. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought you were going to say um, when you said, "Oh, what are you talking about steroids?" I thought you were going to say, "Prayer, you look like you've been taking a few." Do you know, that was literally going to be the next thing out of my mouth. Like, it, it is amazing. Like, I, I know nobody who's listening to the podcast can, can actually hear this, but you're literally taking up the entire screen. It's, it's astounding. Is that because you've got it clicked on just him? <laughs> <laughs> Don't be so derogatory, Ed. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. I thought there was going to be uh, something about Paul and muscle wastage and, and all that with the stereotype. Paul? Paulie Paul. Paul Cocker, yeah. Uh, Richie might not know, but Paul's on TRT. Oh, really? I did not know that. Well, he's like 65 or something, so he also <laughs> needed to. So. Right, yeah. He's got, he's got lots of muscle wastage because he doesn't go to the gym. So He's going to love listening to this. <laughs> he, I don't think even he listens. No, no. Well, if he, if he did, we'd have five listeners and not four. <laughs> uh, don't worry, I'll get my mum and dad to listen to us. So you've got two extra there. Oh, legend. That's what it's all about. Well, I'll be honest. That I'm disappointed that. Well, I'm I'm, I'm happy that obviously that your mum and dad might listen to it. I'm disappointed that I can't even get my own mum and dad to listen to it. So. We have to to you every day, though. Uh, well, not yeah, not quite every day. Actually, I do see my dad quite regularly. Now, this is way off topic, but my dad seems to cycle past me a lot when I'm on the way to to the office. So I always see my dad most mornings just because he happens to cycle past me. So he cycle past you, doesn't stop. No, he does. He does. He stops. All oh, right. Okay, okay. We, we stop when we talk about the weather. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's why he doesn't want to listen to your podcast. Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> yeah, because your chat is that bad. <laughs> hey. So, in terms of the the, the the duration, I don't know if you mentioned a duration of how long studies we want to be doing it. Yeah, um, 12, 12 weeks. Probably. So, twelve weeks is kind of the minimum amount of time that you want to give people who are undergoing a resistance training regime to see if there's going to be any increase in muscle mass. And in all honesty, um, it may not even be enough. 
Um, there was a study carried out uh, in the past couple of years um, where they they did a resistance training and high protein diet with an elderly population again, but they carried it out over 24 weeks, so like a half a year, um, and they did get some decent results with that. Actually, what they saw was uh, there was an increase of two kilograms in lean mass, which is very very impressive um, over six months. Um, and a decrease in fat mass of about 2.7 kilograms. Um, So there was almost no change in body weight, average body weight amongst these people, but quite a significant change in body composition, you know, an increase in muscle mass, lower um, fat mass. So we're hoping in our trial for 12 weeks that we, if, if we do the right kind of resistance training, if we get them doing it frequently enough, intensely enough and we get them following their diet that we may hopefully be able to see some some changes in lean mass in that three-month period yeah that's amazing that's some incredible results um i know we spoke about it earlier but uh do you plan on doing any follow-ups and also just to add to a question I asked in the first recording um are you going to be giving them a plan for the future like what to do kind of next or is it a case of oh you 12 weeks are up see ya so follow-up yes we definitely want to do um so we want to look at how the the changes that we implement in people continue um and we'll potentially we'll potentially do a follow-up at either three or six months just to see if there have been um if people are continuing to do the exercise protocol if people are continuing with the dietary changes at the moment because of basically funding and time and just all of the effort that would have to go into it, we don't have any plans for following up um, and helping people to kind of continue on with the diet. Obviously, we're working on uh, instruction manuals for people um, for their diet, and we want people to keep those, and we want them to maintain that diet moving forward. But one of the big things that we're going to do to kind of maintain adherence during the diet is we're going to do regular check-ins with the participants. So every two weeks, we want to do a check-in to see how people are getting on with their diets, answer any questions, see if people are adhering. And that's a really, like from the research that we've done, that's a really, really good way of getting people to stick to a diet. But we can't continue that moving forward just because of, you know, we don't have the man hours, we don't have the funding to do it. Um, and because I would be doing it all by myself and, um, you know, I just can't keep that up for, you know, two or three years with 60 different people and not get paid for it. So, um, in an ideal world, there's a sound bite. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not getting paid. I'm not doing it. No, no, it's more thinking. I can't keep it up for for two to three years with 60 people and not get paid for it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that will be the uh, promotion clip for the, this episode. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, have you got anything else you want to add? It makes we come to the hour mark. And bear in mind, we've done it twice as well. So, is there anything How we got an hour? That's fantastic. Yeah, 58 minutes. Not bad at all. That's good. Talking with you lads is an absolute pleasure. Oh, <laughs> you're too Boys. nice. You're too nice. Um, yeah, is there anything kind of we haven't covered that you think's... There's a load of stuff that we haven't covered. Well, sure. um, you know, like I, I could go on about this forever. Uh, we can do it, do it for another podcast, let's say. Um, but I think just the most important thing to bear in mind is, so like obviously I've spoken about diet and exercise when it comes to kind of reducing the um, sarcopenia as people get older. I think every, like let's say, working group that's discussed sarcopenia, every research group that's spoken about it, 
they've all said the same thing and that while we are able to reduce its effects quite effectively with you know resistance exercise and high protein diets prevention is a hell of a lot better than cure so because sarcopenia starts you know early it starts when people are in their 40s like in some people it could even start in the in their 30s people just start losing muscle mass and what you want to do is you want to make sure that you don't get to a point in the future where you've lost all of that muscle mass and trying to gain new muscle mass is much harder so we know that building muscle mass when you're younger when you're basically in a much better anabolic environment your body is a much better anabolic environment you gain muscle much easier um you know you've you can be more active. You may have a little bit more free time, a lot less stress, less kids. Um, building muscle mass when you're younger is a much better idea. And maintaining that as you get older is much better than waiting until you're 60 years old, you've been diagnosed with sarcopenic obesity and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And then you say, okay, now I want to try and get jacked. Because trying to put on muscle at that age is tough. It is very, very difficult because of the anabolic resistance that I spoke about. Um, it can be done. It definitely can be done, but it's very, very hard. But we, you know, because of all the research that's been coming out recently about um, muscle memory, so, you know, if you build muscle when you're younger, even if you lose that muscle over the period of a few years, gaining, regaining that muscle is much easier um, than if you never had that muscle before. So it's, it's always good to gain that muscle first when you're young, when you've got the ability to do so, and maintain it as you get older. So like this is kind of to all of the younger people listening to this. And then if there are older people, people listening, um, yeah, you can still make improvements with, with diet and exercise. Um, but yeah, starting earlier is obviously much better. Definitely start lifting young kids. <laughs> Couldn't do it in primary school. Uh, well, I've already got Summer doing it. How old is Summer? She's nearly two. Wow, clean and jerks. Sorry, what? <laughs> no, I know. Um, not quite, no, but uh, she she can hang from the bar. I'm not even joking. I just leave her hang oh, on the bad. bar, which is quite cool. Um, and she did, did you see Carlton's little one doing that? Yeah. I've just got a cool grip. Um, so she can do that. And uh, yeah, she does. She often says to me, because she now knows, because I train at home in the garage gym, she, uh, she often says, Jim, Jim. Me, me. So she wants to come in the gym with me. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I can't wait till she's old enough she can. That's so, brilliant, man. Yeah. Um, right, well, I, I don't know if you've kind of got anything else to go over. Um, so this is your final chance if there's anything really important you want to say. Unless, the, I mean, I do think it was a fine message to leave on, you know, go lift some stuff. Um, <laughs> but for guests, we do like to ask some non-nutrition-related questions. So mm -hmm. just just to surprise you with something a, a little bit interesting. Not that any of this was not interesting because it was amazing, but these are these are certainly the most important questions. Got it. So um, and obviously we haven't given you any prep or any notice, so we'll, we'll see what's interesting. I've actually prepped a qu last question, which I'm not even sure I should really say on 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 a recording, but I'm going to anyway probably. So you can always cut it out later. Well, no, I'll just I'll give people the prior notice if they can cut off at this point and don't listen <laughs> on. Um, so first off, what is your favourite movie? Ah oh, man, oh, that's a tough one. Um, the one that came to mind straight away, the forty-year-old version. Okay, love that movie. Very good movie. It's it's actually a film that I can watch 
like now if I catch it on TV and still watch it and laugh all the way through it? It's it's very rewatchable. That's why I like it. Really good movie. Good shout. Great shout, actually. Um, they say they say you can find out a lot about a person about their favorite movie. So I'm going to be a 40 year old virgin. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is your favorite burger joint? Oh, that is a tough one. Um, actually, you know what? I'm going to go with one that you recommended to me quite recently. Um, bread meets bread. I went based on your recommendation in uh, Glasgow a couple of weeks back, Bang. and it was pretty damn spectacular. Fantastic burger. Good. I will say one thing though: they do poutine. They're they're kind of famous for poutine. Not a not a massive fan. No. Okay. Poutine. 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 Ed's thinking, what the fuck is that? What the fuck is that? It's like cheese, <laughs> exactly, cheese and gravy yeah. on chips. Yeah, but cheese oh, curds. That's just, or curds, uh, yeah. That's just a, a northern thing, though. It's, no, it's not. It's, it's French-Canadian, I think, or something like that. But, yeah. <laughs> so weird. Uh, okay. Um, the northern is of uh, trademarked uh, cheese and gravy on chips. <laughs> what is that place? Like, like Richie just said, it's got like cheese curds rather than like grated cheddar oh. or something. Yeah. Or, I think it would be a lot better if it was grated cheddar. Grated eat lean. They sell that in bags as well, you know. <laughs> Cha-ching! <laughs> NN10, NN10. That's our discount code, by the way. Um, yeah, no, we, for anyone not listening again, I did this on the first recording we did. We'll get a little plug in. I thought I'm trying to wait for another time to get a plug for eat lean in. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. What do you think would be the best food to build a house out of? Ooh, best food to build a house out of. Ah, this is going to be a weird one. Katsuobushi. Fucking hell, what's that? <laughs> right, okay, so in Japan, a lot of dishes get served with these little, really, really thin shavings of dried fermented fish on top. Okay, and that. Those shavings are katsuobushi, okay? They're really, really strong flavors. They've got a lot of um, glutamic acid, so monosodium glutamate naturally in them. And you get it by getting a specific type of tuna. So I think it's called bonito tuna. Um, and you ferment it and you dry it over the course of weeks and months. And it comes out as solid as wood. And they actually have to shave it with a modified wood plane. That so it looks like delicious. Surprisingly good on rice. Just letting you know. Okay, Don't well, knock it till you try. Well, um, and it's solid as wood, so you know. Okay. You can build houses. No, it's good. Well, there's always two angles on that question. One is people picking foods they enjoy, and one people actually think um, and with an engineering side of their brain and and decide what's actually going to work in building the house. So. I don't think building a house out of ice cream is a good idea at all. No, no, no. We know how much you like ice cream, so that wouldn't even last really. You'd eat through it in seconds so. yeah before it melts to be honest yeah okay um this is a, a slightly more serious question but what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given oh it's a tough one that is a big um, question this is one that um so I, I i got this in japan um it's basically the translation is um perseverance leads to power Okay, so um, I learned it in, in a calligraphy class. And then when I was working at the Japanese embassy, the, 
the Japanese ambassador, like uh, on the few occasions I got to chat with him, he mentioned to me once uh, uh, he, the exact same quote and just said, yeah, perseverance leads to power. Um, and it's basically, whatever you want to do, whatever you, you're aiming for, stick with it. Keep going at it again every day as long as you can and as long as you need to because eventually all that work will pay off and you'll get what you get what you deserve basically that is fantastic advice something that i think definitely transfers uh, to pretty much any walk of life dieting you know you look at nutrition dieting absolutely, absolutely. um i just don't think it translates very well to um to to the gains because i've been persevering for ages and i still haven't got there so Got to do it right as well, though. Oh yeah, good point. <laughs> we right at this point. Th at this point. This point. This is where people need to shut off if they're easily offended or grossed out. So here comes the the best question. So this is going to be the final question, and it's to do with a horse. Oh Jesus! Um, well, no, it's not Ed's. Ed, it's not what you think, Ed. I'm, so no, I'm waiting. You just, changed all the other questions. So I know. So I, just, I was expecting the standard. Just, just, be, just bear in mind where I was at the weekend in Amsterdam on a stag do. Nineteen chaps. Things got a little airy. So we we sat in a uh, um, reasonably nice bar or restaurant bar, and uh, some people having lunch. You know, some people having beers, a few G and Ts or whatever. And uh, one lad decides to to ask you know the whole group a question reasonably loudly. Um, with lots of other people in the vicinity, not in our group, which might have been a little bit embarrassing. But um, and this is the question. So uh, as I say, people could probably shut off now if they want, and just we'll end the episode. Um, or if you're really intrigued, just carry on listening. So um, Richie, mum and dad, stop. At this yes, point. yeah, just stop. Yeah, no, definitely. Please, any parents, <laughs> stop. Um, so would you rather? So is this is a would you rather question? Would you rather? Be um, oh, how do I, how do I put this as just be as blunt as possible? Yeah, okay. Would you rather be anally penetrated by a horse? Oh, Jesus Christ! And no one ever finds out. No one ever finds out. That's a very key part of that. Or would you rather not be penetrated by a horse, but everybody thinks you have, and they make sure they remind you of it every time they see you? I think. I would like to be able to walk without pain, <laughs> so I would go with the latter option. Well, that's a, that's the correct one in my opinion. So well done. Me. <laughs> well, I think I was you not actually would figure out eventually, like you know, if I'm walking around bow legged. No, no, but that's that's why I say it's very key because they never find out. So um, um, you just always think you've shit yourself. Yeah, well, perhaps. The funny thing is, right? So, out of the nineteen odd people that were there, only one person said the other the 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 the, the other answer of they would rather have been penetrated, and that was the person who asked the question. So, was that the was that the groom to be by the? No, no, it wasn't. He wasn't the person who asked the question. Um, yeah, I, I definitely was on the side of you know what? I just don't want to be bummed by a horse. So I'll be honest, <laughs> I'd rather everyone knows, even if it means I walk into a pub and goes, everyone goes, all right, mate, seen any horses lately? Or you know, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Bear, bear, bear in mind, Brett. Every time I see you from now on, 
Yeah, yeah. Every time I see a horse, I'm going to think of Brett. Well, <laughs> not for a good way. Do you know what the funny thing is? <laughs> is that this is what every, this is exactly. This is history repeating itself. It's exactly what happened after this guy asked this question. So you should see our little WhatsApp group. There's just pictures of horses and stuff just getting sent around left, right, and center. Anyway, right. Well, on that note, mate, I want to say thank you so much for doing this. Not only once, but twice. Um, <laughs> take, take it's an absolute some, pleasure both yeah, times take, take yeah. some stamina to uh, to basically talk to me and Ed and um, and also come up with so much gold so I'm, I, I hope obviously you, you, oh, I know you're really enjoying obviously the, the research and the, the PhD um, we will love that so after your 12 weeks how long before you'll know or have some stuff to share after the 12 weeks, let's say after the last person does the study, we should have, let's say, very, very unofficial results straight away. Mm-hmm. But we won't know anything until we do a statistical analysis. And I hate statistics, so uh, that might take a while to do. Okay. So it's just interesting to say, well, you know, let's, let's definitely do a follow-up and just, because I'm sure people will be really interested in kind of the outcomes of, of what this is and... Yeah, they might be as as you've kind of hypothesized or expected, but it'd be interesting to see what they do and kind of some of the applicability, some of the pitfalls, some of the stuff that you obviously found out along the way as well. Because obviously discussion points of, of all these types of stuff. It'd be interesting for people to hear and see what they can implement in their own lives if from the positive aspects of it. So Absolutely. It's gonna be a, a major learning experience, you know. So um yeah, we'll we'll hopefully have a, a lot of a lot of good information at, at the end of the trial. Do you have a, a rough start date for Starting in twelve weeks, or we are. So it's not. It's not going to be concurrent. So everybody's not going to be starting at the same time. But we hope to start um, with the dietary phase in July, Um, and then the last person or the last people in the study will hopefully finish by December. Okay, so January next year. Put it in the diary. Perfect. Um, There's uh, the chance, mate, to shout out all your socials. Anything you want to talk about, plug or whatever? Um, yeah, so I suppose if, if people want to contact me, um, they can find, I suppose I'm most active on Instagram. Um, I do a lot of stories uh, and, and nutrition-related stories, cooking-related stories, and then I do like weekly nutrition Q&As um, every Saturday. Um, and you can get me on Be More Nutrition. So that's uh, B underscore more underscore nutrition um and then you can find me on uh facebook very rarely use facebook but that's uh be more nutrition as well and then i'm on twitter as of last as of two weeks ago because apparently all scientists need to be on twitter i still don't know how to use it but i'm bm nutrition uh on twitter as well so you can find me that way and uh yeah if anybody ever wants to ask a question i'm always happy happy to to kind of chat with people on social media and answer anything that they, they want to know. I would recommend you stay off Twitter. It's a cesspool of just horse disgu- pictures. Just, just, well, uh, horse pictures, but I was going to say <laughs> disgusting humans, if I'm honest. Um, it's not a very nice place to hang out, Twitter. To be honest, social media in general is, can be quite unpleasant. No, very true, but Twitter seems... The, the, the absolute worst people seem to um, gravitate towards Twitter. I don't know why. It's just... I think it's just people, uh, once they've got a screen in front of them and they're not face-to-face with somebody, they feel like that they can say anything they absolutely want. Absolutely. And get away with it. I had, um, I had this there's, conversation. There's no risk of getting a slap. 
No, exactly. I had this conversation actually at work. Uh, it must have only been Monday. Exactly that. Because I said, people won't be on the screen. They don't. They, you don't see the human cues of people. You don't know eye contact, no body um, body language and stuff. And and then all of a sudden, people are like, well, that's that. Then I don't feel like I'm talking to a real person. So therefore, actually, I can't offend anyone. So I'm going to say what the fuck I like. It's like, mm. <laughs> anyway. Social social media and keyboard warriors, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, stick to podcasts. Stick, stick, definitely <laughs> st- stick to stick to podcasts. Um, yeah, big again, big thank you, mate. Um, we'll definitely get you again soon, and uh, obviously we'll have to go for a burger again soon whenever we. Absolutely. Cool. Right. On that note, guys, thank you very much. Adios. Catch you soon. Thanks for listening to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast. We'll speak to you all next week. <laughs>